This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. California is one of the most diverse places in the entire world. And in Sacramento, the State Assembly Democratic Caucus really reflects that distinction. I'm Cindy Baker with Look West, and our podcast crew works hard to bring you the stories that also reflect California's diversity. Look West brought together two women, Wendy Carrillo and Blanca Rubio, who came to California as immigrant children and now both serve in the State Assembly. Assemblymember Reggie Jones-Sawyer teamed up with the popular podcast Ear Hustle to take us inside San Quentin State Prison. Fifty years after a massive oil spill in Santa Barbara, Assemblymember Monique Lamone visited that very same beach to talk about some of the environmental challenges that we still face today. We also spoke with survivors of three genocides and learned how Assemblymembers Adrin Nazarian and Laura Friedman are working to avoid such horrendous inhumanity in the future. Of course, all of these shows are available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And as a subscriber, you can expect more episodes coming soon about how California continues to inspire the rest of the nation. Right now, let's take a listen to some highlights from a few of our favorite episodes. Our very first show was with Speaker Anthony Rendon and Dr. Shirley Weber discussing civil rights. You've uh, led a remarkable life uh, prior to your time here in the state capitol. I was just wondering how those early experiences shaped your worldview. Well, you know, I, I think I, as, as most folks know, my, um, my family came from Hope, Arkansas. So my, uh, my f- father and parents were sharecroppers in Arkansas and, and left Arkansas because if he hadn't, he probably would be dead because of his stance on a host of issues concerning human rights and his position as an African-American man in Hope, Arkansas. Uh, so I spent most of my uh, life in Los Angeles from the time I was three years old, uh, raising the projects of Los Angeles and the Pueblos over on 52nd and Long Beach, and um, lived there for about 10 years before we moved closer to, uh, uh, further into South Central LA um, near uh, SC. But, um, you know, being in the projects was an interesting experience for me because I had an opportunity to uh, basically live in a community where there were people really struggling and dealing with economic issues in their lives, but at the same time with tremendous hope and aspirations about what they wanted to do with their life. When you talked about your dad and, and his stance on human rights and you said he may have been killed if he had stayed in Arkansas, was he overtly political or was it? Yeah, my father was overtly political. My father would not say yes or no sir to anyone who didn't say that to him. And you could not call him a boy and expect to be respected. And um, he was not going to allow himself to be cheated. Um, he did some farming. My brother brother was telling me, uh, and they took their crops in for being weighed and what have you. And they tried to cheat him, and my father would not allow the man to cheat him. And they had a, a brawl, a fight there at this place, and so they were coming to kill my father that night. Uh, and my father had to be uh, taken out of Hope to look to Texarkana, and then come to California without us initially. And uh, he came to where my grandmother was, got a job, and eventually moved us out. And I think as a part of that, we kind of learned um, uh, a lot of stuff about being proud of who we were and not tolerating, uh, not being offensive and mean or anything, but not letting people disrespect us. And, uh, and I think that comes uh, in terms of me because I know my father wanted so badly to go to school and could not, would not allow to go to school. And so I often took the situation that if this man with such limited education could stand up for himself, then surely a daughter who goes through all of these schools and gets certified and stamped by everybody 
should at least demand dignity for herself and for others as well. So when the civil rights m movement happened, and I know obviously there were things happening here in California, mm -hmm. but at the, the height of the sit-ins and the protests in the South, that it, it happened at a quote-unquote safe distance. Mm -hmm. How did that feel? Did it you know, at some point we felt slightly disconnected in Los Angeles. Most folks did because the South was far away in some way. You know, you didn't have as much travel by plane as before. Uh, it wasn't really until the Watts riot that people began to realize that there were some serious issues in the Los Angeles area. And um, my family was one house away from where the uh, National Guards were on 45th and Broadway in Grand. Mm -hmm. uh, so we saw the uh, Watts revolt up close and personal. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, and so it was kind of scary, you know, it was scary to think how long is this going to last. Um, at that time, being a high school kid, I didn't understand all the ramifications of how it started and those kinds of things. Uh, I just knew that there was a lot, obviously, a lot of concern. Uh, there were fires, people running, uh, you know, we saw all of this on our front porch. Right. And, um, and it wasn't until after it all ended that you really had a chance to go see the devastation that had occurred. You can hear the rest of Assemblymember Weber's journey in Episode 1. Later in Season 1, Assemblymember Ash Kalra, chair of the Aging and Long-Term Care Committee, sat down with Alzheimer's advocate and award-winning media personality Liz Hernandez. They talked about what they call the silver tsunami and its impact on all of us. Liz, it's great to have you here joining us on Look West. Thank you for having me. I would not be here without the Alzheimer's Association, mm -hmm. Susan, who is here, yeah. uh, supporting me as well, because they really took me under their wing when they found out what I was dealing with with my mom. And they offered me this very humbling platform that I was able to use my voice for my mom. You know, these are the things, you know, you, I put myself in her shoes and I think, you know, if I was going through this, I would want someone to advocate for me. I would want someone to know what I'm dealing with. And one thing I know about my mom, she would do anything for her family to the death. And so I know that she, as much as we've suffered through this, she would never want another family to suffer through it. So to me, I'm, I'm grateful to be here, uh, but I really wanna take the time to make people aware it would save us, if people go and get tested, it would save us 2.3 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars. Yeah. And they're saying now by 2050, 16 million people will have this disease. And, and beyond that 16 million is what they don't understand is Latinos are at the forefront of this disease. And guess mm -hmm. what? It trickles down to their sons and daughters. You may be planning your, you know, you think you had debt in college and you got to pay off these college loans. Well, what's going to happen when your parents get sick because we're too proud in Latino mm -hmm. households to talk about money? Yep. And the reason why we have to have these conversations, people are thinking, well, this doesn't affect us. It does affect taxpayers because guess what? Right. They're the ones who are going to pick up the cost for these families that don't have money put away. And it's so important because... You know, you think when one person gets sick, it's just, sorry, I, I have to keep yeah, saying yeah, this. Yeah. You think when one person gets sick, it's just that person, but it really does. I Again, I, I give so much credit to my dad who worked really hard and we were very fortunate and had funds put away. But had we not, I wouldn't be sitting here with you right mm -hmm. now because I would have quit my job and I would have cared for my mom. Listen to the rest of this episode on the Assembly Democratic Caucus website or wherever you get your podcasts. Switching the focus to the new generation of leaders, Look West also brought you Meet the Millennials, an episode with Assembly Members Majority Leader Ian Calderon, Sabrina Cervantes, and Mark Berman. 
They're the first of the millennial generation to serve in the state assembly. And yes, there were some thoughts on avocado toast. Well, guys, today I think kind of what we want to do is talk a little bit about, you know, the Millennial Caucus and what we do in the Millennial Caucus. But I think what's more important is our perspective as millennials. You know, we are, you know, obviously the first of our generation to be serving in the state legislature. What we do doesn't have impacts just across this country, but it has impacts around the world. And I think it's really important uh, that our voices are represented. And I think that that's why we all ran. We wanted to have a millennial voice, millennial representation. I certainly want to make sure that uh, we can, at times, touch on issues that are challenging for people. I wasn't brought here to keep things the way they are. Sometimes we feel, you know, we'll, we'll agree on the issue. It's the traditional politics mm -hmm. that's holding us back. Absolutely. Um, and, and so as we get more millennials elected, uh, you know, maybe we can start breaking away from that. You know, it's interesting, um, people's perspective on a millennial. I, I feel like we get such a bad rap for, we do get a for, bad rap. for things that we really don't deserve a bad rap for. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, you guys ruined toast with avocado. And it's like, you know, it's like <laughs> you do all these things and it's... Or made it way better. Yeah, well, but that's the thing. It's like, you know, it's always... People are always coming at it from this perspective of, oh, you're a snowflake or you've ruined something when it's, well... Why does it have to be something negative that we've ruined? Why why can't we make, why can't it just be that we just made it our own? Like you had an opportunity to make whatever you wanted your own mm -hmm. as a generation. Now that's what we're doing for ourselves. And just sure. because it's different doesn't mean it's bad or it's negative. It's just different. Mm -hmm. We are very uh, diligent in working mm -hmm. on our issues and maintaining our dis you know the relationships mm -hmm. and, the, and the events in our districts, while also at the same time introducing and managing real relevant policy that actually makes a difference in people's lives. Millennials can govern. They mm -hmm. can take the job seriously. They're good at what they do. They are caring and compassionate. Right. And they're going to do what they believe is right. This was a fun episode for the Look West podcast crew. We invite you to check out the rest of this lively millennial chat from June of 2018. Season two began with Assemblymember Reggie Jones-Sawyer visiting inmates in San Quentin Prison to have a real conversation about preventing crime, restorative justice, and what life is really like behind bars. If we want to close the school to prison pipeline, we really need to start at the beginning um, instead of waiting until um, at the end. So I'm Rasan Thomas, known as New York. Um, there's so much to say, so much to unpack there. First of all, I'm, I'm glad that you're here because I feel like a lot of solutions are here. And one of the things I always think to myself is that what if I had emotional intelligence? What if I had the opportunities that, that I provided at San Quentin in my neighborhood before I ever came to prison? One of the things about me is that I've always wanted rehabilitation, even before I got locked up, even before my crime happened, even before I committed my crime. It's just that I didn't know what I needed. Um, I didn't know where to find the answers at. And I was locked into a, a, a belief system that had the wrong answers, but I thought it was the only solution available. I'm just thinking about if we have an opportunity to create and maintain a space where anybody, child, adult, uh, can offer truth and be vulnerable, this is why restorative justice works. Because you're putting two people that have been harmed to some degree and there's a dialogue, there's a conversation. And it's what is it that we need from both, uh, both sides of the spectrum to find some healing, to find some connection, to find some way to benefit everybody involved. And that comes with just storytelling, just being honest, just saying, hey, I dealt with this and I reacted in such a way. And for that, I'm sorry. 
I see how kids are overwhelmed, and I feel like if we can get more facilitators, people to just, again, create a space, maintain a space, and offer ears, offer um, advice, encouragement, suggestions, not necessarily you need to do this, I, I think that could start to close that uh, school-to-prison pipeline. When you solve things with violence, it destroys everybody involved. If you notice, cops have high divorce rates, high suicide rates, high alcoholism rates. So do correction officers. It destroys everybody involved. So we have to think differently. Like show people that the way we're solving things with violence is destroying ourselves. And um, we always hear this guy talking about make America great, right? But a house can never be great if it's divided. If your if your solution to every problem in America is destroy it like we cancer instead of people, then we'll never get anywhere. How do you interject that? How do you let them become human? How do you let them come to the community and, and talk about that without tearing down the whole law enforcement? Um, and that's, the, that's the restorative justice practice. It's mm. incarceration and the courts should be the ultimate. Like There is no further than that. When a lot of these situations, these school fights, these, mm-hmm. you know, elbows to the face, these are minor, um, I don't want to say infractions, but these are like small things that can be handled in intimate settings. Right. To where an understanding is had. And that could ho- hopefully be the thing that, again, starts to curve this epidemic that we're dealing with. Hear the rest of this inside look at the justice system in the Look West Prevention and Justice episode. What's great about Look West is that advocates, celebrities, and everyday people can come on and tell their stories. Cheech Marin, Kat Von D, and Sheryl Sandberg have all been guests. And farm workers' rights legend Dolores Huerta stopped by for a talk with Assemblymember Robert Rivas. It is um, a a real honor and a treat uh, to be sitting here with my friend, the uh, iconic Dolores Huerta. Um, to sit here with her uh, is really um, a surreal experience. Um, and I say that because over 40 years ago, um, she traveled to Almaden Vineyards uh, in San Benito County, and she helped m- m- uh, my grandfather, um, a-, a man who raised my brother and I, who was a field worker at Almaden for nearly 50 years of his life. Uh, she went to Almaden Vineyards and worked with him and worked with the workers at Almaden, um, and she helped him and his workers secure equal rights in the fields uh, and the better pay to support our family and at the time his family of seven Uh, and so she negotiated my grandfather's first union contract and helped pave the way for my family to get out of the fields and into the classroom Uh, and so certainly had had it not been for her work her advocacy um, I would not be sitting I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that I would not be sitting here today as a member of the legislature it's awesome that coming out of the gate that you introduced this bill for public housing, <laughs> which is uh, kind of a tribute to the legacy uh, of, of your grandfather uh, who raised you and a tribute to all of the farm workers that, that really feed our nation. And I think that's so important because uh, uh, people often, I think we owe the farm workers. When we think most farm workers, unless they're covered by a union contract, uh, they're working at minimum wage right now. Uh, and they have a hard time just, you know, keeping up, uh, paying their monthly bills that they have. And, and unfortunately, uh, so many of them live in terrible, terrible, decrepit type of housing. And in fact, during the harvest season, I have seen, uh, I, have, I have come to places where you have maybe 14 people in a house. You know, there's hardly any place for people to, 
or really even sit down. Most of the time they have to stand up or lay down because there's no space for them. And your bill really uh, is, is an awesome bill because it really, uh, it gives a very practical way uh, to provide housing for, for farm workers. Listen to the rest of episode five from season two by clicking on our farm worker housing episode. Also among our favorite episodes, our most recent show, as the U.S. women's soccer team won yet another World Cup, Assemblymember Tasha Berner Horvath had a conversation about equal pay for equal play with three-time surfing champion Corey Schumacher. When I was growing up as a kid, I was six months old when Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs. So that pretty much defined a lot of my ideas around equality of the sexes in terms of um, athletic competitions. And it's 2019, and I don't want my little girl to have to go through that same type of inequality and seeing that every day when we're hearing the news and we're, you know, we're a very outdoors district and going to our beaches and seeing surf competitions where men and women are provided equal categories. And I think uh, Council Member Schumacher comes from it with a little bit different perspective. I was born and raised surfing, um, born and raised in that space. Um, I started surfing when I was five, started competing when I was eight years old. And being in competition and also watching my mom and my dad in surf competitions, um, I was raised um, with the understanding that women and men are unequal, that women surfers were not valued as much as men, and that there was something internal to us or something something about us that just um, that we didn't deserve to have equal pay. So as I got older and as I became more educated on on different systemic things that go on, um, gender disparity, what I realized was that um, everything that I had grown up knowing and understanding about myself, um, possibly thinking that there was something personally wrong with me, which is why I couldn't get sponsorships or why um, we, you know, women would be thrown out in the worst conditions all the time, I started to realize that, um, that the systemic problems that were inherent in surfing, number one, were not just problems that were inherent to surfing. All other sports and women in sports experience them. Um, but that there was also something that could be done about them. Because if it wasn't something that was some inherent trait to women, then clearly it was something that was systemic and clearly it was something that could be um, altered. So I spent the, the, the last 15 years of my life fighting for, um, for equality in surfing and in sporting spaces from surfing. And when um, I, was, I started to get involved with, with politics about two and a half years ago, I was elected at the same time that um, Assemblymember Bernal Horvath was elected to the Encinitas City Council. And <clears throat> we both um, had a conversation around um, you know, the, the what-if scenario um, that ended up becoming reality, which was that the Assemblymember was elected to the 76th Assembly District. And you know, uh, at, during that conversation, it was, well, what if we, we codify this? decision. Um, there's been very little that has been done since Title IX, which we both grew up in that era of Title IX, which, uh, you know, allowed us access to sports in our educational institutions. And, um, you know, Assemblymember Bernard Horvath took it and ran with it. When you look at it, you have a lot of people who've gotten elected who want to see equality in the athletic space that we have guaranteed in lots of other places. So it's almost like the last bastion that hasn't been touched when you when you categorize an athlete as an a worker and so i think what this bill does it says it looks at it and where else would we ever allow pay inequity will you never let 
um, a male nurse be paid more or less than a female nurse. You would never let a male teacher be paid more or less than a female teacher. So why would you ever let a male athlete be paid more than a female athlete? So this is just a bit of what you can expect from Look West, and our team is working hard right now to bring you a behind-the-scenes take on what, why, and how your assembly members are striving to keep California thriving. Show your support today and subscribe to the Look West podcast, and don't forget to rate and review. I'm Cindy Baker. Thanks for listening. And whenever you think of California and politics, remember to look west.